Go watch the opening of Pee Wee's Playhouse. It's kind of fucked up in a wonderful way. And I can't say I'm well versed in kids' shows today, but someone, someone tells someone me they say just... it's like oh, someone say it's like Opium in a Shed, the other failed name of this podcast. Opium in a Shed, or Quarantine Comics. We're at risk of becoming Grant Morrison fanboys, or should I say we are already Grant Morrison fanboys. We love everything he does. Well, somebody once told me the world is going to roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. Thank you for that, Roman. Thank you for that blast from the past. I will also say, speaking of blast from the past, this is our third episode featuring the Scottish writer who recently came out as non-binary. I referred to him as he before. Actually, that's wrong. They now go by the pronoun they. So we already reviewed Morrison's run on New X-Men during last year's X-Month, and a few weeks ago we did their take on a Batman haunted house story with Arkham Asylum. And this week we're going to look at their version of Marvel's The Fantastic Four with, well, Fantastic Four, one, two, three, four. Well, the years start coming and they don't stop coming. Fed to the rules and they hit the ground running. Didn't make sense to not live for fun. Your brain gets smart. But your head gets dumb. That is a subtle preview of Roman's take on this book. And as an added bonus, we're going to also look at Morrison's visionary limited series, All-Star Superman. Yeah, this is this is some lyrics straight from me, not from the hit band Smash Mouth. About that. While All-Star Superman is Morrison's love letter to the Man of Steel, Fantastic Four 1234 is more like their revenge porn to Marvel's first family. Which is to say, Roman hated Fantastic Four 1234, or maybe he really, really loved it. I don't know Roman's take on uh, revenge Holy porn. Holy shit, it is so bad. All right, this should be good. I'm Roman Segel. I'm Ryan Joe. And we're two guys who are neither fantastic nor all-stars, but we sure do try. Some of us try harder than others. Okay, so before we start slavering over... All-Star Superman, which I know for a fact that you and I both love. I think we had very different opinions on the Fantastic Four 1, 2, 3, 4. So, Roman, why all the hate? I mean, you can't monopolize shitting on books. So I, I feel like it's my turn. And I feel like you are literally spoon-feeding me hot garbage to read. <laughs> there was a Warren Ellis book that we didn't talk about that I hated. And this one, I read it when it came out because I like all things Fantastic Four. They are, They were the first comic book i actually remember reading as a kid and so they have a soft spot in my heart for what they stand for and i'll give you an analogy i actually just thought of this one ryan this maybe this will make sense on our last episode or on one of our last episodes we got off on a tangent about how Zack snyder doesn't get superman right and that's what one two three four felt like it felt like Zack snyder taking a dump on the fantastic four the characters are there. Hell, the best villains are there. Namor, Doctor Doom, the Mole Man. But but these do not resemble the characters. And the irony is, Fantastic Four 1, 2, 3, 4 was in the Marvel Knights imprint, which is in continuity. And this, again, this, this book is hot trash, and it tries to do things. It almost assassinates the characters. Whereas All-Star Superman is out of continuity, but it should be in continuity because it's so good. So I... Again, it boils down to what was it interesting? Was it exciting? Sure. 
does it get the characters that it's trying to portray? No, it's an all new, all different take, and it sucks. Okay, but. so so what didn't you like about the characters? Because I think I have the complete opposite view of one, two, three, four, and what Morrison's trying to do here. Well, they're characters. And to be clear, everyone in All-Star Superman is also a heightened character. But the character, and I'm looking at the back of one, two, three, four, it says heartfelt. No, these characters are not heartfelt. It's exaggerations of each character's worst persona trait. It's Reed Richards is a recluse and an asshole. Johnny Storm is a hot-headed asshole. Ben Grimm is misunderstood and an angry asshole. And Sue Storm is a... I don't even know the adjectives to describe. She's a bit of an asshole. Like every, It's like they're all assholes in this book, and that's not who Marvel's first family is. And just... It, it really felt like I was reading Funhouse Mirror versions of these characters now to be fair jaylee's art goes perfectly well with that because jaylee has this funhouse kind of way of portraying people it, it's there's there's kernels and nuggets about the relationships these characters have but they're just pulled out and twisted in such a perverse way that it just viscerally i didn't like it so i'll, I'll, I'll turn it back on you ryan why did you like this kind of for the same reasons you did it i <laughs> So, I mean, the book has its problems. It's a very truncated story. And it almost feels like a distillation of a Fantastic Four story in that it features like every Fantastic Four villain. It very quickly glosses over the key personality traits of each member of the Fantastic Four with Ben Grimm's insecurity, Johnny Storm being kind of like this raging materialistic jerk off, and then Reed Richards being aloof. And then, you know, Sue Storm being the glue that that really holds the entire four together. And she she was, is the one calling everyone out. Yeah. That's that's a fair point. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, everyone just kind of shows up very briefly, exhibits the character traits that they have traditionally exhibited in the Fantastic Four stories, though magnified, like Namor lusting after Sue Storm, you know, the Mole Man, you know, kind of just raging at the people on the surface. Those are all the familiar characteristics of those villains built up over like... I don't know when the Fantastic Four came out, like over the past 60 years. And it's all kind of encapsulated in this book. What I do like about it, though, is that kind of strange and moody and weird pop science take on it. Part of it is the art. I've never seen the Fantastic Four illustrated this way. I've never seen the relationships carried to these extremes where Ben Grimm so upset about his non-human appearance that he volunteers to be wound back in time. He gets seduced by Dr. Doom, and you know that, that kind of kicks off the, the action. You have Reed Richards and Sue Storm. You know, Reed Richards kind of, again, this is the first time we've really seen, he's always been sort of an aloof character in the comics, but this is the same, same time where he's been so aloof that the marriage actually seems on rocky ground. And so I, I kind of liked that take on the Fantastic Four. As you said, it was a weird, distorted, funhouse mirror version of it. I'm actually surprised when you said that it was within continuity because it certainly didn't feel like it was within continuity. No, all, all of the Marvel Knights line, absolutely. In fact, it's not the Smash Mouth song that belongs to this episode if we're going to talk about 1234. It's uh, Knights of Sidonia by, by Muse. That feels like the perfect song for this because 
I don't know. The Marvel Knights imprint was a tricky one. I get what they were trying to do in the late 90s, early 2000s, like fresh takes on the characters. And we've talked about this. This is where Marvel, I think, fails is everything's kind of in continuity or in a pocket universe, right? Um, Like Heroes Reborn or the Ultimate line. The moodiness, 100,000%. The art captures it. Jay Lee, it's masterful. Like it is. But it's, I have read Fantastic Four where they have twisted the screws of Reed and Sue's relationship, where they have twisted the screws of Ben and Johnny's relationship. Literally, Secret Wars did that. Like, you know, Ben decides to stay behind, and Johnny hooks up with his wife, right? Like, or his girlfriend. Like, they have turned the screws on these characters with lasting problems, with lasting character moments. But it's just, these characters weren't believable. And I don't mind screwing with their traits, what makes them unique characters, but it just pulled the needle too far on them. And maybe maybe if this wasn't a four-issue limited run, maybe if you did this for 10 to 20 issues, commit to it, but by the end, everything resets and everybody's fine. So, no. To me, that's why I liked it, though, because it was so short and it was so... You know what it felt like to me? I mean, it really did feel like... Fantastic Four is seen kind of through the lens of a, of a nightmare. And so that's why I forgave the weird character beats that felt not fully thought out. That's why, you know, even the adventure stuff, like why does Namor suddenly decide to help the four? Ah, who knows? It doesn't really make a lot of sense. But in the same way that, you know, when you're in a dream, you know, characters in your dream do one thing and then they do another and it doesn't really make sense. I can't argue with your reasons for not liking it. Uh, especially because they're like precisely the reasons why I liked it. <laughs> but Fantastic Four, one, two, three, four stuck with me, even, you know, because I first read it probably when it came out. I got the single issues and I still remember certain things from it. I remember visually the art. I remember how weird and strange it made me feel flipping through it. And I remember especially, you know, Reed Richards' use of his powers in a way that I hadn't seen before, which I thought was really brilliant, you know, because Reed Richards stretches. All he does traditionally is just stretch. And here, what he's doing, he's actually literally manipulating his brain, growing new brain structures in order to outthink Dr. Doom. And I thought, oh, that is a really weird conceit that I had never seen before. Reed Richards is like a non-entity through most of this. He's locked in a room doing no one knows what. And then when he finally shows up, Dr. Doom is gloating. He's saying, what have you been doing, Richards? I've been planning and plotting. And Richards looks at the camera and he's like, well, Victor, I've been thinking. And I, I just remember that moment. It's just like a subtle, quiet moment that also seemed like a mic drop of Reed Richards knowing that he's owned Dr. Doom. And then you kind of see how he's done it, which I thought was, again, in a way that was that he's never really done it before. He was literally using his brain in a way he'd never, he'd never done. So that's what I liked about it. <laughs> Okay, but you didn't have, they didn't have to be such assholes. I, I don't know. I so uh, yeah, yeah. Let me let me ask you about that also, because like, did you did you like the because of the Ultimates when that came out? That was basically Mark Millar, the Avengers as assholes. Asked you a few differently about that. You know, that's a great question. I am not as attached to the Avengers, right? Because Ultimates was written and drawn like a Jerry Bruckheimer film. So it wasn't just that they were assholes. It was, here's a realistic take on the Avengers. You know, what would it... Mm. Tony Stark is an alcoholic. Captain America is a man out of time hanging out with George W. Bush. You know, just like... Even Thor is like a Tony Robbins type character. Like, all of these things intuitively make sense. It's a modernization 
uh, take on what if these characters really existed in the quote-unquote real world in an action movie. That's what the Ultimates did. I'm not sure what this book was doing. I was really thinking about Grant Morrison a lot in terms of what they do. I do want to talk about All-Star Superman to contrast this, but both of these books are two things that are near and dear to our heart, and they're probably pulling at the strings of what Grant Morrison likes most about these characters. What's interesting that you mentioned, I later on in this podcast, I want to find some time to read some other Fantastic Four work. Jonathan Hickman's run on the Fantastic Four. Warren Ellis's run on Ultimate Fantastic mm. Four. Mark Wade's run on Fantastic Four. Like, and these are modern takes on Marvel's first family. I'm not talking about the classics, Trial of Galactus, you know, John Byrne sort of stuff. The one thing I actually really liked that they went really almost a little too far with was the Namor-Sue relationship. I mean, that's always kind of hinted at around the edges. And there's one scene where he's just like lustfully looking at Sue and you're like, oh, I get this. Namor was probably the only believable foil in the book because it accentuates that relationship. The Alicia conversation, Alicia and Sue don't have a relationship. I guess it's kind of cool to see what if they had a chat. I actually didn't need as much exposition for the Mole Man's Napoleon complex, you know? There are things that could have been done to make this better of maybe only having Namor, maybe having each issue really dig into each character, which it kind of didn't. And I kind of thought I remembered it as being that, but, you know, maybe each of these books could have been a one take to kind of twist the knife a little bit versus trying to make a coherent plot because what makes the fantastic four work is they come at it against all odds because they're a family and they're not a family in this book and so and it's not to say all families are loving i mean the dysfunction this is almost as bad as it's always sunny in philadelphia the the kind of level of assholeness that these guys have i don't know I feel like they're a family in crisis here. One thing you pointed out, it's always sunny around the Fantastic Four, traditionally, in that it's almost always a very optimistic book. They are very much this family unit kind of going out on adventures. And here, I think part of, and this adds to that darkness, is that it's a family unit that's being fractured and is being fractured because of Dr. Doom. And again, that's what I, 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 I liked about it, that nightmare, the fact that it felt like the stakes were higher, that this could be the end of the of the Fantastic Four. Obviously, it's it's not going to be. But the fact... So I, so I, did, I didn't get the sense that they weren't family. Actually, that, that relationship between Sue and Alicia, I actually really liked because it showed like a very close friendship just in that conversation and the fact that she would talk very intimately to Alicia. And why wouldn't she ordinarily? Because Alicia is is Ben Grimm's girlfriend in the, in the comics. And, you know, other things, the details of that. Alicia is blind and Sue Storm shows up and she's just she just remains invisible when she has that conversation it creates this very eerie look to to it and it, and, it, and it kind of elevates to me what would be an kind of an ordinary domestic conversation into something that genuinely feels surreal but okay so let's talk about a book that we we both liked and i guess you know fantastic 4 is to, was to me kind of like a distillation of the Fantastic Four mythos, as Grant Morrison saw it, for better or for worse. And yeah, well, I think what, what I will say, one, one thing I'm really enjoying about literally every argument that both of us were making <laughs> against, for or against this book, was literally making the other person's argument. <laughs> so, yeah, we anything, were. I mean, it's an illustration in preference. It really is an illustration in preference. Yeah, it is. I mean, we both kind of agree exactly on, on you know, on 
on how Grant Morrison's presenting the Fantastic Four. It's just that you really did not like what he was doing, and I really kind of was was into it. And yet, for some reason, there's a universal appeal to All Star Superman. I literally, yeah, I, I thought it was weird when I read it as a kid, and I have the original issues. But you didn't read this we, as a kid. We were both adults. This came out. This this came out two thousand six. We were both. I feel like we were both into adulthood at that point. But it 20s, made you feel like a kid. Oh, tw- fair, but twenties versus forties. Let's be clear. Okay. Uh, Mid twenties, early career versus forties and fatherhood. Right. And but again, I en- it was weird but enjoyable that first time as as I got the monthly issues. Not sure what they were doing with it. But every subsequent reading, I enjoy it more and more. It just it speaks to the power of this book. One reason I really like Grant Morrison is that moments in his comics really stick out to me. I mean, even 20 years later, and I'm talking about New X-Men, Arkham Asylum, Fantastic Four, and All-Star Superman. Like, And All-Star Superman has a lot of moments that I still kind of think about from his portrayal of Clark Kent. I mean, I've never seen Clark Kent so kind of like a... Uh, buffoonish a milk toast so yeah. buffoonish and such a milk toast and I'll, you actually kind of understand in a way why people wouldn't believe that he's superman just the way grant morrison portrays him and he grant morrison actually does a really excellent job kind of playing that up you know there's that episode one of my favorite issues is when clark kent is interviewing lex luthor in prison and there's a riot and Superman has to squell the riot and save Luthor without while being while Clark tailing Kent. him as Clark Kent and without ever revealing that he's Superman. How does he do it? And I thought that was like literally one of the most creative single issues that I have ever of any comic that I've ever seen. And it was just something that so perfectly also encapsulated Clark Kent. And it perfectly encapsulated just the arrogance of Lex Luthor, who just so arrogant he can't see literally what is right fucking in front of him. That Clark Kent is Superman, and it also kind of captured the joy of a Superman comic. I mean, it's just it's just a hoot to read. And during this time period, most of the Superman books are treating him as a Christ-like figure, almost very somber. And honestly, they still they're still doing that. And which yeah, is, and, and, the, and, and the thing that I love the love letter aspect is this goes full tilt while maintaining a coherent plot. It goes full tilt into. 60s era sci-fi weird ass mm. shit batman and superman adventures and i love it i just and you know one thing that made me so angry about this book is frank <laughs> quietly in a good he way made you ang- okay because it's you know how i feel about i want to read a whole book by the same writer and artist and this is 12 issues of beauty of grant morrison and frank quietly dancing together for 12 issues it's amazing and it made me so angry about what new X-Men could have been, <laughs> you know, like I, I just so good, just like so good. And this, this book is peak Frank quietly because it's weird, but simple, but beautiful. So this book makes it look so easy and you know, there's so much complexity beneath the layers of that. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I'm actually, angry. You- I'm angry for them pulling this off and never pulling it off again together i'm i'm just grateful that they did you know because this honestly would not be the same if they brought in some other yeah um, illustrator who wasn't frank quietly to to do this i mean the the run is legendary in large part because of frank quietly's just really epic art frank quietly is just so good at body language and very subtle body language i mean just 
just the way he poses Clark Kent versus the way he poses Superman, the way he poses like Lois, uh, uh, Lois, and and Lex Luthor. You know, you see that arrogance in in Luthor with that his chin always jutting up and his his constant kind of like leer. And then the other thing you mentioned about this book is that how it captures all of the weirdness of Superman, right? Like Superman went on some really effing weird adventures throughout his. Well, time. you know, you know what planted the seed for us to read this is a few weeks ago when we read Jimmy Olsen. This book gets Jimmy Olsen. And it takes yeah. me also to another degree. He gets his own issue, like of this twelve issue maxi series. Yeah, it's great. I actually kind of wonder how much of this version of Jimmy Olsen influenced Matt Fraction's run on Jimmy Olsen, because it seems like it actually just feels pretty much like the same character. This guy who just he goes off just as some weird, amazing stuff. He's actually very talented, and he's often the instigator of some of the really weird shit that Superman gets involved in. Yeah. What's the name of the, the new character that they did introduce for this book is the guy at P-R-O-J-E-C-T, which I, I wish I knew what the acronym stood for. But I like how he hints at that. There's a line where Jimmy Olsen said, so tell me about Project. I know it's an acronym. And he never answered that question. They just <laughs> just kind of leave it hanging there. It's like, OK. And, and I don't I actually don't know if Samson and the other guy are real characters. I don't care. I don't need this to be. And again, it's out of continuity so they can do whatever they want with this. But I don't care, you know, because they're done well. And I just, the book takes a lot of swings. It's decidedly weird, but it's decidedly true to who Superman is. The The fundamental undercurrent of the book is uh, Lex's plot to kill him is supercharging his cells. So he has all these super superpowers. He's even super er right? And yeah. it's his downfall. And it's what what do you do with you know, with the limited time on this earth. what are, And even the flashback stories, the flashback um, story with the time-traveling Superman core back on Smallville, like an emotionally rich episode. There's a lot about mortality here. I mean, I'm thinking also about the last episode in volume one, essentially the death of his dad, of Jonathan Kent. Yeah, his dad. And, and you know, reconciling, you know, with that and how that kind of turned him into who he is. And of course... The last episode of Volume Two is essentially the death of of Superman. Though it's not, it's not entirely clear whether he does die uh, or if he just no, he's know, in the sun, energy man. and flies into the sun. Yeah, it looks like yeah, it's it's a little bit ambiguous, or maybe it's not. There's a big splash page where it shows him kind of like like John Henry in the middle of the sun, cranking it up. You know, and something that occurs to me, and I don't know, but at the end of Episode Five, and they're called episodes too, by the way. The end of Episode Five. It's that one amazing issue where Clark Kent is with Lex Luthor during the breakout at the jail. Yeah. And as Clark descends into a subterranean universe, he's literally, it looks like he's going into the underworld. Okay, that's interesting. Hmm. The next issue, if you fo- follow that version of Clark, looks like a flashback from Superman's point of view. But by the end of the book, you find that the member of the Superman Corps is actually a bandaged up Superman. It's revealed that is Superman who wanted to try to save his dad one more time. And it's almost like, did he go from the underworld to back in time? Or is this just oh, a flashback episode? That is actually really interesting. I never and it was, it wasn't because I'm looking at it right but, now. But, yeah. Because the underworld lady is just a civilian. It's like Lex's niece. Well, There's no... yeah, but I actually think you're onto something. I mean, I think, I think the visuals it's intentional. I mean, that is something that, Grant Morrison and Frank quietly probably intended for that, you know, when the niece is Ferry and Clark Kent away, it does look like the underworld, even though she's literally not ferrying him to the underworld. And the next episode is him 
meeting his dad right before his dad dies so he can essentially say goodbye. So there is, I think that progression, I think that actually, that's really interesting. I think that progression was definitely intentional on the part of- Well, now I'm trying, what's fun is I- I didn't go dig out my issues. So I have volume one and I had to read the second volume through the omnibus edition electronically, which is a pain in the ass to scroll through. I hate digital comics, but so I'm trying to figure out what happens after that. So, you know, bizarro. our super bizarro that, that yeah. so let's, let's shit on it a little. I enjoyed yeah, the bizarro oh, thing, but I didn't, yeah. I didn't like the bizarro issues. They're kind of like, I didn't either. It just felt like a lull. And it's like, Oh, we got to check some bizarro boxes. So this is the thing, like volume one stuck with me. It just left a huge impression. Pretty much every issue from Jonathan Kent stuff to, you know, Clark Kent. Lois Lane, the Lois Lane date. The Lois Lane date was fantastic. All of that stuff. And then volume two, there's some good stuff in there. I agree, but it just doesn't have the memorable moments that kind of haunt you. It felt like the second half of a Netflix season. (laughs) It did. Yeah. You know, and I think part of it is also because it's coming to an end and you kind of have to do service to the meta narrative, which is Superman is dying in the first volume. He doesn't really bring it doesn't really dominate any of the stories towards the end. It's sort of like Superman trying to get his shit in order. And it's just, you know, it's, it's just kind of like less memorable because that meta narrative isn't altogether that interesting. It's just sort of like the, the dramatic stakes in the background that kind of adds some urgency to his missions. And, but when it becomes like the full narrative, it's sort of like, Eh, I don't care. It's typical shit. And and yeah, and 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 so the bizarro issues that volume two opens up with, and it's two episodes, which I think is too too many. Well, to um, be clear though, the one thing I really did enjoy was the, not even the character, but just the introduction of Zabaro. <laughs> yeah, he's sort of like the run normal guy on the bizarro world, and he just freaking hates being there because everyone around him is a moron. So he's just sort how of like, I feel every day of my life. Initially, it's kind of interesting because the take on Bizarro is that they take you over and turn you into an imbecile. And But, you know, it doesn't really go anywhere beyond that. That only affects the first two or three pages. And then after that, Superman gets stranded and hits the Bizarro world. Like, literally, that's how he solves the problem of the invasion on Earth. He literally hits their planet, which is sort of like, okay, that's not the most innovative way of doing it. You kind of expect more from Grant Morrison. And then the second Bizarro issue is basically Superman just trying to get out. And it's just not particularly interesting. And and honestly, so to keep shitting, right after that, he comes back to Earth many months later, and there are these two Kryptonian assholes. Like, even that I didn't enjoy as much. It wasn't as bad as the Bizarro books, but it just... It was about, yeah. hey, hey, let's sketch out a lot of obligatory stuff from the Superman mythos, kind of like Fantastic Four, one, two, three, four, had to have the Mole Man, you know, had gotta have Alicia. Let's check off a couple of other boxes. And something that was noticeably absent for me, especially in this era of Superman in the early 2000s, was you only mentioned Batman once. And the kind of weird shit you could, and again, at the time, DC was publishing all-star comics with all-star Batman and Robin with Frank Miller and Jim Lee. So maybe that would have driven a little bit of confusion, but they are best buds, these diametrically opposed people. And Batman also had his weird sci-fi era. So I could have done with one less bizarro episode, potentially get rid of the Kryptonian asshole episode and give me a little bit of Batman or a little bit of the justice league, even though I know Grant Morrison had done the justice league in a very normal, weird way. I don't know. Felt felt like a missed opportunity. The, the Kryptonian asshole episode, as we'll call it. 
Yeah, I, I, I that would didn't work for me either. I do think like what Grant Morrison was trying to show at the end was Superman, you know, extending his his grace, his forgiveness. It's like a side right. of Superman that you don't normally see. But you're right, it doesn't happen in the most part, in the most interesting way. I mean, in a way, there's a Deus Ex Machina element to how he defeats the Kryptonian jerks. They just kind of lose their powers, and he's like, "Oh, you guys are critically ill." After breaking the it's moon, how, yeah, and it's like. Okay. And he's like, yeah, you know, I, I extend my forgiveness. It would have been, you know, a lot more interesting if Superman actually had to defeat them conventionally and then showed his mercy. But I guess there's probably not enough room for that in a single issue. Um, there's one moment, and I don't know where it is because I'm literally having trouble scrolling through the thumbnails. There's one really beautiful moment. It's And again, after the Kryptonian assholes leave and like, you know, break the moon, steal all the world's bridges to stitch the moon back together. There's literally in, somewhere in it in the aftermath where Superman's literally having to bring all the bridges back to Earth. And he's literally, this man who knows he's dying still has to undo all this shit. You know, okay, I got to do this. I got to do that. I'm right. I'm literally writing my will. And there's one moment, and I don't know where it falls in the continuity. He, you know, he's trying to solve the Candor issue. He, there's a girl who's about to commit suicide. Yeah, and he saves her and he hugs her. And it's it's a really brief moment. But he's like, I've got all this important shit to do to put my affairs in order. But I'm going to go save this girl really quick. And that was the it was almost like saving the cat in the tree sort of stuff that Superman will always do because it's the right thing to do. So I mentioned in volume one that I just remember a tons of moments, you know, 20 years later. And I didn't remember much from volume two, but that moment when he saves the girl who's about to jump off the, the building, that I really remember very, very strongly. And I actually, and after that, I don't remember anything that happened before that, anything that happened after that. I don't even remember how it concluded. I don't remember him fighting the tyrant's son. I don't remember all of the, I didn't remember all of the big epic stuff, but that little moment. And I think that maybe that's that's kind of Grant Morrison's thing. It always feels like the end of his runs get really, really chaotic. The opening of his runs introduces one or two really weird concepts. He does one or two really weird things with the characters. They take it, the ep, the issues take their time. They breathe, and I'm saying this also about like um, New X Men and all the other stuff of Gra Doom Patrol. Also, all the other stuff of Grant Morrison's that I've read. And then towards the end, it's almost like he's like, "All right, I got to throw all of my ideas in right now. Everything in every panel." And it becomes a bit of a clusterfuck. And you know, unfortunately, All Star Superman is subject to that particularly in the episode after the kryptonian assholes with the exception of him saving the girl he's just kind of running around doing errands all day yeah you know what's interesting you mentioned the tyrant son and one thing i appreciated about both the sun eater and the tyrant son were these were callbacks to other things yeah. in dc comics the tyrant son solaris was from another dc annual event called dc one million and it was actually pretty good it was like literally if uh, what would be Superman issue 1 million? When would that come out? And it's like, you know, 50,000 years in the future. And anyway, I, I just literally looked up who wrote DC 1 million and the tyrant son Solaris is the main villain, uh, a sentient super son. Grant Morrison wrote it. What I do appreciate is Grant Morrison calling back and having fun with things that he had already created, even like the Superman core of the future. This is something that's hinted at in the Justice League and in DC 1 million. So, and Justice League being Grant Morrison's run. So I think he was kind of pulling at the kernels of the things he wanted to play with, but he couldn't do that well in continuity. But when he's allowed to kind of go apeshit crazy with Superman, 
But to your point, it's like, oh, let me throw all these other threads in. I gotta, I gotta put a call back to that thing that I did before. With volume one, if you give it to somebody and just, you know, have them read like one issue, doesn't matter where, they'll get it. They'll, they'll be able to figure out the story. It's actually very, very clear what the story is about. It's, each thing is actually very self-contained. Volume two, I, I can see being very alienating. And it was actually alienating to me even having read the earlier issue. I, I will say I did like how Superman eventually defeated Lex Luthor using the gravity gun to kind of speed up his metabolism. And it is Lex Luthor has super strength, but only for 24 hours. And so Superman has to defeat him pretty quickly. And so he uses the gravity gun to warp time, speed up Lex Luthor's metabolism, and basically run out Luthor's clock. And that pretty much lets Superman take him out pretty handedly. I thought that was pretty clever. It kind of kept it from being just a dumb slugfest. Well, it's also a callback to the Lois issue. You know, the 24-hour timeline. It's Yeah, well, actually, I, so well, there's a line where Lex Luthor says, I've replicated Superman's power as only I could have done. And of course, Superman had done that in the early run of the series. I thought that was <laughs> that was funny. Volume 2, episode 7 through 12, had their moments. But most of them, I hate to say, were kind of callbacky in nature. They weren't terrible, but they just weren't as interesting. And I guess that is the fundamental problem. It's really hard to follow up the first act. It's really hard to stick the landing with all the threads that you're kind of putting out there. You know, TV shows have this problem. Movies have this problem. So it's fine. They actually, similar to similar to Superman Red Sun... DC made an animated feature of All-Star Superman, which I have not watched. Have you? No, I'm probably not going to. One of the things I really like about Frank Quietly is art and storytelling is that he often doesn't show the action. He shows like something's about to happen and then Superman does something kind of, yeah, or then Superman does something very subtly and then then he shows like uh, the result. And I actually think that's a really effective way of, of, illustrating these stories because we're so used to seeing big explosions and shit happening you know i guess like the action happens so fast that you don't even notice it you just see the result or not even the result you see the danger averted and you know that superman had a presence in it it makes it feel even more mythic it kind of adds to the mythic feel of superman and it's a very effective storytelling strategy so if we we do this in animation which again i haven't seen you kind of see all of that action play out. And I actually think that would make it feel a little bit more conventional. I don't disagree. What's so ironic is we agree on many of the points of All-Star Superman because it's a superior comic, even though we agree on all points about Fantastic Four, one, two, three, four, but just wildly different interpretations. Yeah, yeah. Superman is definitely better than Fantastic Four, one, two, three, four. I, I kind of feel like Fantastic Four, one, two, three, four is sort of like a little... I don't know, it's sort of like a little ditty you bang out on the piano, you know, when you can do something you, a little. Also a name of our podcast. But I, here, here's the irony. I think more great Fantastic Four stories have been told. And so you don't need to mix it up with them. I don't think a lot of great Superman stories have been told. There have been some good Superman, but it's kind of hard to tell a good Superman story because it's kind of a easy plot. Superman versus someone. Superman wins, you know? And so the one thing, the, the one meta thing I'll say I really do appreciate about this is the dive into Superman's character and processing. Even though that you're not spending a lot of time in word balloons, you're not seeing what's in his head, short of the last will and testament, 
You have to observe Superman's character through his actions and his expressions, equally from Grant Morrison and Frank Quietly, about dealing with his death, the kind of slow march to his death and what his duty is. I just released a podcast episode where this Indian executive is talking about the idea of dharma and dharma being duty. And it's like, you just do it because it has to be done. You don't care about the credit. You do better work when you just do it because it has to be done. This is the idea of dharma. And that's what the Superman in these 12 issues, these 12 episodes really exhibits. And because of that, I feel like I have a better understanding of the character of Superman, even though it's not just, oh, he's always going to do what's right. It's it's more of like a a cosmic duty that he has. With a lot of weird sci-fi hijinks along the way. Yeah, you kind of you kind of see where that's coming from, right? That that sense of duty. You know, even though you know, there's no real moral ambiguity with this Superman. There doesn't need to be. I know, like other versions of Superman. I mean, like Kingdom Come. He's just like he's infused with, "Am I making the right decision? Am I not? How can I carry the weight of the world?" Sort of thing, which honestly gets a little bit tedious. You know, here he doesn't really have that, but you get a sense of where this mentality is coming from why he feels the way he does. And even towards the end when he's dying and he's still trying to do everything really quickly, as much as that frustrated me from a narrative perspective, it showed kind of Superman really under the gun and really under a lot of stress, but still very creatively solving these problems. And as you mentioned, still reaching out to the one girl who's going to jump off of a building, still taking time to kind of reach out to her and try to save her. And moments like that really kind of elevate that character. Yeah, and I mean, she didn't have to, like, try to sleep with a fish man, or he didn't have to stretch his brain out to do it. So, you know. Well, it would have been interesting if Superman did do that. But I just will say, have you have you read Al- any of Alan Moore's Superman stories? What's funny, when I went to the library to pick this up, because they had it immediately available when we decided that we we're going to add All-Star Superman, and as I'm on the shelf to grab this, Alan Moore's What About the Man of Tomorrow was there. And I was like, mm. I should grab this. But I did it because I knew I was going to have to carry it. <laughs> if you if you really if you want to read all of the Alan Moore's Superman stories, pick up the collection DC Universe: The Stories of Alan Moore. That's an episode that I've been wanting to read that, and I think that's an episode. All right, I'll commit to that. That one's actually a lot of fun, and it just kind of shows a much different take on. I don't want to know. Actually, that's not that's not the right word because he doesn't reimagine the characters the way. You know, Grant Morrison brings out the things about these characters that he loves the most. And that's not what Alan Moore does. I can't articulate it right now, but maybe when we do the episode, I'll have it figured out. But that leads me to my next question, which is, Raman, what are we reading next week? Well, next week, speaking of subverting superheroes, we're going to keep the hits coming. But we're going to talk about characters you have never heard of. We're reading Black Hammer by Jeff Lemire, published by Dark Horse Comics. And... The gist of it is, 10 years ago, the superhero Black Hammer and six other superheroes had saved Spiral City, but in the process became trapped in a Twilight Zone-ish town. And now in the present, these six heroes are living on on a farm with no hope of escape. Kind of like what we do every week with this podcast. Well, they sound like they're socially distant, so. (laughs) Thumbs up for me. I think you're going to like this one. Or we're going to like and hate the same things about this book. All right. It's Hammer Tom next week on Quarantine Comics.